Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Listening to the New Statesman podcast, Anush is taking a well-earned holiday, so it's just me and my colleague Stephen Bush today. On this episode, we talk about Pretty Patel's plans for offshore detention of asylum seekers, and you ask us, what should Labour's strategy be in Scotland? So today there are further stories about various potential home office plans to house asylum seekers offshore in different ways that sounds vague because the briefings are vague and they're all quite different from each other it's obviously a very sad story as well as being a quite bizarre one it began on Tuesday with a report in the Financial Times that Pretty Patel had asked officials in the Home Office to look into the possible construction of an immigration centre on Ascension Island, which is a British overseas territory, literally 4,000 miles away in the South Atlantic. And then today, we, there's a further deluge of, of leaks about other potential Home Office plans. So potentially housing asylum seekers in ferries off the coast of the UK. There's another story. These are all across different newspapers. There are, you know, possibilities of, of using different Scottish islands and also the possibility of putting asylum seekers in disused oil platforms in the North Sea was also discussed. So as I say, it's quite a grim story, basically depending on your politics, as well as being slightly bizarre and there's a definite Whitehall element to it. Stephen, I suppose the, the interesting element of this is that the reasons why people find it shocking are quite obvious, but recent polling does suggest that there is a plurality of support for, for this or for the principle of housing asylum seekers offshore. Yeah, I mean, I think, so the polling didn't surprise me, but actually a lot of the reaction to the polling surprised me twice, right? One, mm. I don't understand where people are living. I, mean, I literally live in like the epicentre of someone which is like this byword in like right-wing demonology for social liberalism. I look out of this window and I can literally see someone putting out the bins on our estate who has like, I mean, this is, you know, someone who themselves is like a second generation immigrant who's expressed views than, than are like very much in like, and I can see someone else walking away. I'm always kind of slightly perplexed by why it is that like a large chunk of like politicos from the people going kind of very sagely, ah, oh, yes, Twitter is not Britain. Or the people going, I can't believe this. It's just like, really, is, is this surprising but you know tony blair once talked about how you know 
in a very different context. Policies than people go, oh, the policies are popular. And he's like, well, sure, they're popular if you say as like a one sentence proposition. Do you think that people who who are trying to come to the United Kingdom should, yeah, they should have some kind of offshore detention? And then people kind of go like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm, I mean, I'm well into that. I think if anything, the the fact it's only a plurality affects. So then Blair talks about that, you know, that then you kind of go like, OK, so you say you want this. Do you want this more than X or you really think it's going to fix this problem? Yeah, this problem in inverted commas. Do you, you, do you really think it's going to fix this if you have to work out? Yeah, you know, like you're going to have to do some onshore processing to send someone to Ascension Island. I think it was one of those weird things where I felt then like, it was like there was this kind of weird, like, commentary at overreaction and then an overcorrection in the, yeah, it's a stupid idea. Obviously, it's on the face of it going to be popular. But that doesn't mean that, like, I then saw people doing kind of chin-stroking takes of the kind of, like, how should Labour respond? You know, it's very difficult for them. It's like, do you know what? Actually, I think, I think one, people do broadly understand, A, that, like, offshore detention in Ascension Island is unworkable. They understand also that it's cruel and then, you know, you can critique like the kind of like way that we always talk about like child poverty as if it doesn't matter if someone's poor and they're over the age of 18 or whatever. But I think people understand all of the problems that actually come with this. But there's just a very visceral desire for control. I think it does kind of expose like a like a big problem for the liberal left in the 21st century, which is we're going to enter this age of much greater movement as climate change displaces people. And that produces a very visceral and instinctive reaction in electorates around the world. And the challenge for all left-wing parties is how do you prevent the era of a changing climate becoming the era of Pretty Patel? I suppose the, the question is, I mean, the Ascension Island example, which has been kind of broadly re- rebuffed and denied, is a good example of how not only is that anathema to a lot of people the idea of detaining asylum seekers you know thousands of miles away from the shores of the UK it's also quite obviously unworkable and so it doesn't necessarily pose that much of a challenge to labor as as you were basically saying because that's obviously like a really stupid idea but I suppose the challenge is some of the proposals that have been leaked today they can't all be true and I would imagine that they are all being leaked because no decision has been reached at all on it. And these are all these, this is just at the ideas stage. But I suppose keeping asylum seekers on an island off the Scottish coast, for example, seems less cruel on the surface of it. What and arguably more workable while still being politically anathema to people who object fundamentally to the the optics and the nonverbal signal that that sends to asylum seekers that they have to be you know kept at arm's length away from the the mainland and they're they're somehow they're not welcome and they are other and they should be processed apart from from other people Nicola Sturgeon has already made it clear that she would really oppose those plans but the idea of some kind of offshore quote-unquote solution to the to the problem of asylum seekers I suppose fundamentally not all of the ideas are completely unworkable and maybe that does pose more of a challenge for labor what do you think yeah I think it does I mean I think in an odd way right the elephant in the room in in sort of all of these kind of conversations about uh, the treatment of people who want to come to a country is then 
although you can you can soften the edges, right? I, I'm not suggesting that I think that like the immigration system in Australia is not more cruel than the immigration system as it currently exists in the United Kingdom. But broadly, if you have a border, you, you have like in some ways, right? The debate about borders and offshore processing and and all of that stuff i think often for the labor party it exists in the same zone of unreality as the debate about the irish border does on the british political right now where people are like oh you know but but maybe we can diverge and, and have it be invisible like no no your divergence needs to be enforced so your border is not invisible uh oh no maybe we can like do trusted traders oh, so you're just proposing a huge degree of of tracking yeah so, so like with the hostile environment right if you you'd have people like david goodhart kind of going oh no no this this isn't what i was advocating for and it's just like well where did you think these checks were going to happen you know they can happen in like a big scary center somewhere they can happen like every time someone wants to rent a property or get married or get a job but if you don't want this, you have to be able to win a political argument for not having borders, which I think is essentially, I don't think it's impossible for a political campaign, but it's certainly not a project for a political party looking to gain seats and votes over a five-year period. So then I think, it, yeah, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying, yes, I think it is really difficult for the Labour Party, because then the issue they have is like, is, well, okay, what are you willing to concede on? What are you not willing to concede on? Whatever you do, you're going to be doing something that has some inhumane features. What are you willing to do? Do you end up in the kind of like, what I think of as the Lib Dem in 2010 trap, where they made this big song and dance about how they like had, had banned the detention of children. And it's just like, well, they have, but they kind of haven't. The consequence of doing that is massively increasing the amount of family separation that happens at, at border checks now in the UK. And of course, I don't agree with the, the this counter-argument, but I think so some Lib Dems who listen to this will get in touch and go, oh, you're being completely unfair because this is better for the individual children. And other Lib Dems will go, yeah, you're completely right. We should do... Because whatever you do, unless you can take on and win consent for not having the border, these unpleasant things happen. Mm. I suppose one option which doesn't completely address the problem of like if you have a border you have to sort of enforce it somewhere and, and what do you do with that and how strictly do you do it but I suppose one option would be to kind of zone out I suppose as you and Anoush often rightly point out your domestic policy can't really be separated from your foreign policy and these asylum seeking and immigration are all symptoms of global issues and as you say with climate change it's only going to become more of a feature of the modern world but you know even if it isn't the UK's sole responsibility to be sorting out these global problems clearly if you want to address what you see as a problem with people seeking asylum then you need to help the pe people in the countries where people are fleeing so I suppose there would be an argument for labour for sort of trying to force the conversation in such a way that people step back and think well where are these people coming from and what is the UK government currently doing for those people and I mean there is plenty that the UK government could point to um, but there's also all the noises coming from this government definitely don't underline that in the that the UK does still have a generous aid budget at the moment and is committed to using its soft power and influence for, for peace and for the greater good and for the education of children and 
for all sorts of humanitarian projects but definitely like their top line is that they kind of they don't want to be doing that and they're you know so that with all those changes to DFID and its merger with the FCO and murmurings that they're going to cut the aid budget in the next budget I mean we don't have a budget this year so it's kind of irrelevant but you know all of this all of the noises coming for this government are that they aren't really committed to exerting soft power across the world I mean I'm sure that we have seen Dominic Grab um, standing at the dispatch box talking about you know the UK's commitment to aid and so on but I think the ultimate message is that they are less preoccupied with that and they're focusing more on trade deals and where they deploy aid across the world they want to see it more aligned with their foreign policy targets and so I think there is a way for Labour to say look you can't be expecting to address asylum seeking you can't address the symptom unless you go to the actual source of the problem and you're not you're not prepared to do that and you aren't making the case for the allocation of aid in these countries and thinking more constructively about what you can do but I suppose beyond the policy on migration there's the other element to this story the kind of more trivial one which is Priti Patel and her relationship with civil servants because all of these briefings do seem to be coming from perhaps like disgruntled civil servants who are trying to make her look bad. And I don't think it dismisses the story. Like clearly these things are happening and clearly this is the direction that this government wants to take. But, you know, in the context where, you know, that bullying investigation into her behavior took place months ago, it finished in April and it still hasn't been published. And in the wider context of the way senior civil servants have been treated by this government, you can kind of see that there's a subplot of anti Priti Patel sentiment informing this. I mean, it's a it's a really it's a serious policy story, but I also think that the way it's playing out is, is you know has comical elements to it because, for example, the the potential policy of putting asylum seekers in an oil platform in the North Sea. I had to look up what an oil platform would actually look like. I don't know if that makes me an idiot. I had just never seen one. But I mean, if you if you look it up on Google Images, I mean, it's I mean, it's appalling, but it's also like just incredibly bizarre. I mean, it really is just a sort of if you can imagine a house on stilts in the middle of the city with loads of cranes all around it. That's what we're talking about. That was floated as a as a policy proposal and it's been briefed to the newspapers. And what I think is happening is that civil servants are obliged to put all the options to ministers when they're discussing potential policy solutions couched in their advice that some are more likely than others. And normally they don't get leaked. So the more outrageous and less plausible options don't become part of the narrative, but in this case they have. So I mean, one example, I remember civil servants talking before Brexit night, the government wanted to, I mean, you'll remember there was a light show at Downing Street to mark Brexit day on the countdown to midnight. Well, in the, in the discussions running up to that, I don't think I've ever put this in print before, but in the discussions running up to that, the civil servants put all sorts of ideas to Boris Johnson and they were looking into having a drone show which was for for very many reasons like really really not a runner but I think Boris Johnson was quite keen on it and they they couldn't do it in the end because I think there were security concerns and also they would have had to do a rehearsal beforehand so everyone would have seen it anyway but that's the sort of thing that doesn't get briefed out to papers 
because that's just you know part of the way consultation works in Whitehall that there are really bad ideas floated that immediately get rejected but they are on the table at some point and so I do think that's what's going on and it's just um in this otherwise quite serious story it's a slightly funny example of civil servants revenge on Pretty Patel like they do have means of making her look quite absurd if they want to yeah it's it, interesting because obviously the kind of like yeah, the the line coming out from I assume Downing Street is yeah, like in, in Playbook today and in various other isn't this is a civil service thing. I'm actually not convinced it is, to be honest. Really? At least I don't think it's a home office thing. Because yeah. what what all of these leaks have in common is they are all things that make the foreign office's life more difficult. I also think, right, this this slight weirdness, right, that yeah, obviously like, you know, are people who either are making a great deal of effort to sound like Dom or Dom himself, you know, briefing, oh, you know, these are these embittered Remainers and, you know, they're angry because a hard rain is coming. You know, some of my, my best long-term sources have, have been senior Home Office officials. And do you know what I would not in general say about them? <laughs> that they were bleeding heart Remainers? Um, <laughs> I mean, like, like, you know, this is, this is, this is somewhat it's senior leadership, right? Is, is, this is, this is, you know, the, the department of, of Theresa May and John Reed, and indeed, like, like, so it's it's true to say that Priti Patel has had an antagonistic relationship with civil servant servants at every department she has been at. Right, civil servants have complained about her, you know, pretty much constantly, regardless of where she's at. And in terms of some of the operational concerns, whether fairly or unfairly, many people believe Downing Street shares those views, and that is why there are so many quite competent people at Minister of State level at the Home Office. But, you know, like people do not work on policy at the Home Office because they kind of, yeah, and then go home and cry themselves to sleep every night at the prospect of putting some people on a disused oil platform. I genuinely do think that, I, I'm not saying that, that I think these are definitely coming from ministerial level but i think if they're coming from a civil service level they're coming from a foreign office and i think if i also wouldn't rule out and they're coming from ministerial level because i mean these are literally proposals that like dominic raab or i guess actually oh god who is who is um australia now i i keep wanting to say um say james dudridge but he's mid mid east africa yeah this idea that the junior minister is going to kind of rock up and go hey guys, we were thinking we would build a major detention centre here and somehow ship thousands and thousands of people here all the time. That cool with you? And and so I, I reckon this is actually um, intra-Whitehall beef, not intra-department beef. And I think it really speaks to the really interesting thing about what's happening with DFID and the aid budget and the DFID-FCO merger, right? Which is, is the DFID-FCO merger a way for the Foreign Office to retain its dominant and powerful position on Whitehall? Is it kind of part one of it going, we'll have the trade bit back, we'll have this bit back, we'll have those weird bits which are somehow in the cabinet office back? Is 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 this like the foreign office strikes back and a situation which allows Dominic Raab or whoever it is to, as Tom Tugendhat puts it, use the five fingers of trade, aid, diplomacy, security, and another thing. Sorry, Tom, please don't get in touch to complain about me misremembering what, what the five fingers were. Is it about that or is it about just sending some red meat to the to the base and showing that they've done something because it's quite easy to tear something down, but a lot more difficult to build something up? The answer, of course, is both. And I think what we're also seeing play out is that tension within the disconservative project, as it were.
If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. for a section we like to call you ask us so this week our question is what should labor's strategy be in scotland Stephen, i know we spoke about this a few weeks ago um when there were various challenges to richard leonard the scottish labor leaders leadership and various calls for him to resign and a couple of people stepped on from his shadow cabinet but we thought we'd revisit this question in the light of, firstly, Keir Starmer's comments last week that the SNP would have a mandate for a second independence referendum if they win a majority in the May Scottish parliamentary elections that are coming up. And also because I have just done an interview with Richard Leonard himself, so plug for that. And so we thought it'd be a good time to talk about it again. And also because whenever we meet in person, not on the podcast, we often do talk about what Labour strategy should be in Scotland. And it's not an easy question. And it's clearly a very important one at this point, because, I mean, for the for the two very obvious reasons that our, our listeners probably don't really need reminded of. But just to be clear about it in our minds, you know, I mean, if your politics are such that you would like to see the union remain, these elections in May could be the very last chance to stop that because if the SNP win a majority that could very likely lead to a chain of events that would eventually lead to an independent Scotland and definitely the Scottish Labour leader if Labour's position is that it wants to see the maintenance of the union which is its position then you know the the Scottish Labour leader has an important role to play there but then also secondly if Labour's to win a majority again it will almost definitely have to go through Scotland unless it does incredibly well in England. If it doesn't, and the thing that I think on that that's really interesting is that if Labour were to hope to win a majority without any recovery in Scotland, it would need to be winning seats up to and including Jacob Rees-Mogg. So it would really have to be a, a really decisive swing for Labour in England. So with that in mind, Stephen, what what are your sort of immediate thoughts on what, the Labour strategy should be for Scotland? I sort of think they shouldn't have one, to be frank. Your, your interview was, you know, it's it, it very good, kind of. I was, I was, you know, I think, you know, one of the things it highlights, right, is that ultimately it's just really difficult for the third party to break out, particularly when the third party is incredibly similar to the party they're trying to usurp, other than on this 
one obviously totemically important issue, right? But one where, you know, ultimately, as you know, as you know, Richard Leonard himself argued and think, right? Like ultimately, like you can't make that go away by going, oh, maybe we're agnostic on the constitutional issue. Uh, the problem is, is that you know, while there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be like, you know, a progressive unionist party. It's not a that is not a political position that is capable of doing better than a strong third place or a very weak second place. And I think yeah, the thing is important to remember, right? It's wholly possible Richard Leonard will still finish second in the elections. He's currently not in that position, but you know, I bluntly, I, I don't think Douglas Rock is, Ross is a particularly good politician. I think there are structural problems with the electoral strategy than they've had since Ruth Davison, then it has a fairly hard cap on it, which means that if your cap is second and you have a bad campaign or hard to imagine this, I know, there's a particularly bad mood music from the bigger bit of your party down south, then suddenly, of course, you are third. So he he could, of course, come second. But I kind of think, to be honest, what is the number one recruiting drive for support for Scottish independence? It is the perception that England is badly governed and will continue to be badly governed for some time. And then then you cannot escape being badly governed from England without independence. Now, I actually think Richard Leonard's argument in your piece about what you can't escape simply by pressing the, the button marked independence and the, the kind of global interconnected nature of, of the constraints Scotland would face are all true. But emotionally, I don't find it remotely surprising that the average this thing is the average person on the centre centre left in Scotland is now pro independence. I just think the only way that you can combat that, if you are the Scottish Scottish Labour Party or indeed the Labour Party as a whole, is either you have a, another referendum in which either your current leader or someone in the you know or one of your MSPs emerges as a kind of incredibly talented, telegenic, great communicator. People, you know, kind of. People are kind of like caught up in their thing and they can kind of do, you know, they can they can expand the pool of the available electorate. Or you need to be able to fix the problem of people not liking the politics of England. I guess and I just think like so the only solution to this, their Scottish problem is to fix their English problem and win a majority here and demonstrate then, you know, then the escape mechanism of independence is unnecessary that's kind of my feeling on it what what having done this interview then what, what do you think their strategy should be i suppose they are two slightly separate questions but they're 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 overlapping like what should their strategy be on a second independence referendum and what should their strategy be for recovery in scotland i think on the first one i was actually very much persuaded by richard leonard on this i put it to him that there's is a definite feeling among some people in his party that Labour should adopt what they call a pro-choice position. So they shouldn't necessarily be advocating for independence, but they should be making the case that people have a right to make that choice, which is not something that he's prepared to concede at this point, even though Keir Starmer has said that the SNP will have a mandate, which, I mean, let's be honest, they just would. Richard Leonard is like really not prepared to say that at this point, and he's very keen to position Labour as a party that is against a second independence referendum going into the May elections. But I think regardless of whether you think that they should or shouldn't be having a referendum, I was just, I think... There's the tactical, but also the deeper moral positioning of of where Labour stands on independence. 
I think Richard Leonard is actually right. I mean, it's a bit of an unfortunate news line for him, but he he's you know he said to me in the interview, people who want independence or who want a second referendum will vote SNP. They're not going to vote Labour. And I mean, he's definitely right on that, even though saying it explicitly is maybe not super helpful for him. So there's a strategic thing of actually like people want to know where you stand on something and uh, an agnostic position is not going to work because you aren't going to win those voters back. But I also think more fundamentally, Labour isn't in favour of independence. I mean, there are some people in Scottish Labour who are, but when you think fundamentally about what Labour represents, just, just because a progressive political position in Scotland is now basically conflated with a pro-independence one doesn't really mean that Labour should collapse into that argument. I think that that's just fundamentally not what they believe. And Richard Leonard was actually quite prepared to go into the practicalities of independence. And it's not helpful for the SNP or for the Conservatives, or even necessarily for Labour to be drawing comparisons between Scottish independence and Brexit. But there definitely are some. And there are just so many cases where when you look at what independence would mean on a kind of, in terms of the fundamental political ethos, as well as the practicalities, it's just not what Labour stands for. And I think it makes sense to me that you would have a leader who would be making that case strongly, asking people to think about it more carefully and to just push back a little bit on that narrative from a progressive position rather than from a conservative position although you potentially do as you say need a more punchy communicator to be delivering that message which many of Richard Leonard's critics have argued that he isn't but on the broader question of like their their strategy in Scotland I thought it was interesting because We've touched on this a bit before. My own view is that their strat- like the labor, the UK-wide labor, or you know, Great Britain-wide labor strategy is quite clear for winning back socially conservative voters in the in the so-called Red Wall, so in the north of England and in Wales. We've talked a lot about that strategy of dialing down cultural issues. You know, a message of economic unity, of a radical economic transformation that can unite people. And in little ways, you can see with Keir Starmer's address at conference on patriotism, you can kind of see how he's pitching to those people. But it's less clear how Labour can supplant the SNP with that kind of approach. And I did kind of, I put it to Richard Leonard in different ways a few times, you know, what's what's the actual strategy here? And the argument is that it's, you know, it's the same north of the border as south of the border, that it's about fixing problems for people on the ground and having a real sense of the everyday problems that ordinary people are facing in the wake of this crisis. I thought that was interesting, but not altogether convincing because it's playing out differently in Scotland than in England. And I suppose I don't have an answer to what their strategy should be, but I think that we maybe are going to see more of a problem emerging in the months and years to come with Keir Starmer's approach and with the way Labour is pitching itself that it does play to voters in the the north of England potentially much better than the than the sort of younger progressive demographics it's trying to to win back in Scotland and we maybe are going to see more divergence between the Scottish Labour leader and the UK leader but yeah read the interview for all of Richard Leonard's thoughts on this and on Keir Starmer's strategy and much more. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.